everyone. Good morning. This is Andrea Montanino. I'm the director of the Global Business Economics Program at the Atlantic Council. A warm welcome to Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. In 2011, the Atlantic Council presented Madame Lagarde with one of its Distinguished Global Citizen Awards, which are designed to spotlight the inspired leadership our complex world requires. And today, she is joining us as the sixth and final speaker in the Power of Transparency series, co-organized with Thomson Reuters, uh, featuring high-level speakers with diverse background and expertise. The series looked into the role of transparency in fighting corruption in financial system, inspiring global prosperity, strengthening national intelligence, and in preventing future financial crises. The key takeaway of, of the series for me is that while there is a great interest in making the world more transparent, there is also an even greater need to explore further areas, uh, further the areas where the world lacks transparency, and there are still many around. Uh, while at the same time, I think we have to continue to showcase the progress that has already been achieved. I look forward to hearing from Christine Lagarde about the power of transparency to increase economic resilience and the role of the IMF. As a former executive director at the fund, it's a personal pleasure and a great honor for me to be welcoming you here at the council. As a personal note, I always appreciated your transparent approach, providing full disclosure, disclosure to the board about program negotiation and other sensitive issues. And I also noted the increasing attention of the institution as such to provide additional information to the public in order to allow a more informed judgment. Think, for instance, I give just an example uh, that I remember well, the debt sustainability analysis, which is extremely relevant nowadays to make investment decisions. I would also uh, welcome Ms. Mona Vernon, uh, the Vice President of Innovation Labs at Thomson Reuters. For her and, her and ultimately for the company to succeed, transparency across the enterprise, among the networks she manages, as well as transparency in facts and data are very important. Before giving the floor to you, Ms. Vernon, I want to give a special thank you to Kate Frederick from Thomson Reuters for her tireless efforts and support through the series, and Marie Casper from my team who made this series an unexpected success. Let me finally recall that the event is on the record and you can tweet using the hashtag power of transparency altogether. So Ms. Vernon, please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Andrea, for this very kind remark. Um, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to join us today. It's uh, been um, it's great to be here at the Atlantic Council for the sixth and final installment of the Power of Transparency series. I'd like to take a moment to thank Fred Camp and the Atlantic Council for their partnership and leadership in this effort. And a very special thanks to Andrea Montanino and Mary Kasparik for the tireless work in making this joint effort a great success. We are honored today to welcome the Managing Director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, for a discussion on the power of transparency to increase economic resilience. The IMF's primary purpose is to ensure the stability of the international monetary system and transparency plays a critical role, increasingly part of that responsibility. 
Transparency is also at the core of everything we do at Thomson Reuters, and the reason we are pleased to co-sponsor this series with the Atlantic Council. Whether it's combating illicit finance and money laundering, bringing transparency to the complex world of global tax, delivering accurate and actionable information to financial market, and providing a transparent land management system to developing countries, our products and services help foster a more transparent, connected, and empowered world. As a global solution provider in areas such as supply, supply chain risk, global trade management, and economic development, Thomson Reuters is on the forefront using technology and information to increase transparencies in markets, regulatory frameworks, development programs, and trade to just name a few. We recognize that transparency is not a static notion. We must be vigilant in bringing increased transparency to complex challenges we face today and we may face in the future. The IMF has taken on this task in many ways, but multilateral organizations and governments can't do this alone. The private sector has an important role here as well. We are pleased to be on the front lines of this effort through Thomson Reuters Labs. Through our labs, we are exploring innovative data-driven solutions in collaboration with some of the world's brightest and smartest minds in global innovation ecosystems, in startup communities, universities, increasing transparency and unraveling complexity. At this time, I'd like to acknowledge our moderator, Axel Trelfall, Reuters um, editor-at-large. With over 20 years of experience in text and television journalism in both London and New York, Axel represents Reuters and Thomson Reuters at both external and internal events as editor-at-large. Prior to this role, Axel was the lead European anchor for Reuters, specializing in European politics and economics. Before that, he was an anchor at CNBC in London, and between its stints as a reporter and editor for the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. Before we get this discussion started, I'm honored to introduce our distinguished guest. Christine Lagarde joined the French government in June 2005 as Minister for Foreign Trade. As a brief stint as a Minister for Agriculture and Fisheries in June 2007, she became the first woman to hold the post of Finance and Economy, Minister of a G7 country. From July to December 2008, she also chaired the ECOFIN Council, which brings together economics and finance ministers of the European Union and help foster international policies related to supervision, regulation, and strengthen global economic governance. As chairman of the G20, when France took over its presidency for the year 2011, she set in motion a wide-ranging work agenda on the reform of the international monetary system. On July 5, 2011, Christine Lagarde became the 11th managing director of the IMF and the first woman to hold that position. On February 19, 2016, the IMF executive board selected her to serve as IMF managing director for a second five-year term starting on July 5, 2016. Christine Lagarde was also named officier, officer in the Légion d'honneur in April 2012. Please. Join me in welcoming Christine Lagarde. Well, thank you very much, Mona, for this uh, kind introduction. And thank you, uh, Fred, and, uh, and you, Andrea, for um, organizing, sponsoring such an important uh, cycle of, uh, of discussions on the concept of transparency. 
Uh, I, I see many friendly faces around here, and I'm delighted uh, to uh, be back with the Atlantic Council. I'm not in the laundry business, but I'm going to start with two quotes, one of which is going to sound ambiguous to you. Sun is the best disinfectant of all. That's for the laundry part. But Stendhal, a very famous 18th century writer, Le Rouge et le Noir, that was him, wrote in that particular novel, actually, that he wouldn't like to live in a country where there would be no shade. So it's in between that sun, the virtues of which are closely related to transparency and how much light you shed on transactions, and the comfort of a little bit of shadow that transparency has to navigate. We are a little bit far away from the IMF, I know, but there is a connection. As some of you probably know, the IMF's mission and job, which was set in 1944, when the institution was formed right after, or actually even before the Second World War was finished, is to promote economic and financial stability. And that is a very precious public good, because it allows the economies to grow, and it allows probably an easier job at sharing the pie between the economic players. That is, all citizens, in whichever capacity they are. Now, we do not create that public good. We contribute to it. Those who create the public good of economic and financial stability and eventually prosperity are the member states of the IMF, 189 of them. And they do so using all sorts of tools, but I contend that they do so also by disclosing data, policies, information, statistics in a transparent manner. By sharing this information with other policymakers around the world, with other multinational, multilateral institutions, by working together and uh, not just in times of crisis. I have my memories of the uh, G20 very, very engaged and active meetings, but also in regular time. And our members do all this with our help because they know that what happens to their economy, they know that what happens to other economies is going to matter to each and every one of them because of the very strong interconnectedness that there is between those economies. Volance nolance. That's the way supply chains are organized. That's the way companies have invested around the world. And that's the way economies actually interact with each other, as we have amply demonstrated in many of what we call our spillover studies of the impact of one set of policies over another countries or group of countries. And the IMF work is actually based 
on that transparency. And we couldn't do our work if it wasn't for that transparency because it all starts with the data. It all starts with the numbers. It all starts with the disclosure of information and the sharing of that information. Now, we have many, many different roles. Uh, I would mention four of them. The first one we, we play is that of the trusted advisor. Typically, on an annual basis for most countries, a little less often for the very small countries, we conduct surveillance and give policy advice under what is called the Article 4. For those of you who are familiar with the IMF, that's the work that we do on a regular basis. We go under the skin of an economy, we engage in a dialogue, and we make our recommendations based on the actual data, numbers, and information that, is, that are validated under our codes and standards. The second role we play is that of a global watchdog. And that requires that we raise flags and encourage information sharing and collaboration. The third role we play is that of a fitness coach, if you will. Because we provide technical assistance, training, and in many countries, particularly the emerging market economies and the low-income countries, we help with their capacity building and development. And finally, uh, we are also firefighters. When the situation is very dear, uh, when there is no one around to actually provide financing, we provide the financial assistance in times of need so that economies can get back on their feet and provide better prospects for their citizens. It's not the IMF money, it's the international community money that we actually lend. And in consideration for that international community financing provided through our services and intermediaries, we expect the countries to actually sort out their public finance and deal with the issues that have led them to ask the international community to lend to it. So, transparency actually allows us to wear all these different hats for the benefit of our global membership. And for most of us, the benefits of transparency have been obvious in some ways. I think you would agree that much has been achieved over the past decades, but we have also tried to quantify the benefits of transparency, because as one of the first deputy managing directors of the IMF once said, Stan Fisher, and I'm quoting him because it's quite, uh, it was quite premonition on his part. He said, nothing would help improve standards more than if countries that met higher standards were rewarded with lower borrowing costs, acknowledging the value of incentives, as always. Well, voila. No, no, I promise I'm not going to switch into French. <laughs> we actually tried to dig into that. And some of our IMF researchers uh, went into that to see whether greater data transparency has, had had an impact on the borrowing costs of countries. And based on their study, which covers a whole span of countries that have gone through the various stages of transparency of data and communication. It shows, the research will be published in a couple of months, it's almost done now, but it shows that the 
practice of the ultimate transparency for the emerging market economies in particular has led to a 15%, one 15% reduction in their spread of in the spread of their sovereign bonds. Within three months after the improvements of transparency has actually been acknowledged by the markets. So there is a tangible outcome from the effort undertaken by those emerging market economies to actually be more transparent and disclose the data uh, that they have. Now, of course, that is you know, the net benefit for countries. But what is good for the membership is also good for the IMF and for our mission. And it allows us to better contribute to the public debate. It allows us to actually offer the work that we do with the consent of uh, our members. Most of the 189 members actually now volunteer to have their Article 4 report be published on a regular basis and made available to any public scrutiny. And it helps the analysts, the observers, the academics to actually go deep into their understanding of countries, but also scrutinize and investigate the work that we do. And we don't mind that. We are often criticized. And that's the price that we have to pay for accountability. It's not pleasant. Transparency is not pleasant. And that's where I come back to Stendhal. I wouldn't want to live in a country where there is no shade. Well, price of no shade, which is the reverse of transparency, is that you are criticized because you are accountable. Now, in pursuing that transparency, and we've done that uh, repeatedly over the last few years, uh, requires that we also engage uh, in a broader, with a broader audience. And uh, under the leadership of our head of communication, uh, Jerry Rice, who is here, uh, we have decided uh, to go out reach out and actually be accountable to members of parliament, uh, to business owners, to students, uh, to women's association, that's my personal cause, um, to policy experts, to policy non-experts, to NGOs, to people interested. And we will continue to do that. And I think that this whole debate that we're having at the moment about the experts and the value of those experts actually must be addressed with transparency, with proper communication, and with less jargonic discourse that can actually engage uh, much better. So this is really all I wanted to say as, as a quick opening remarks before we go into the discussion that uh, I'm sure will be far more interesting than my opening remarks. But don't forget, sun is the best disinfectant, which means that light and transparency can actually be extremely productive when it comes to removing a few of those funny practices and dubious financing. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Madame Lagarde, for those uh, words. And thank you for that little uh, uh, 
bit of news, the 15%, which I'm sure we'll delve into a little bit uh, uh, in a while. Um, I'm delighted to be back at the Atlantic Council, uh, honored to be hosting this final uh, conversation uh, in the series. Now, with my news hat on, there is an awful lot for us to talk about. Um, and of course, our guest is uniquely positioned to talk about a lot of that. Uh, luckily, I think um, our theme today will allow us to address uh, a number of these issues. Um, so we will get to that stuff, uh, whether it's in this conversation or in the question and answer session uh, that I'll come to uh, at the end. But I, I do want to, to make the chunk of this discussion on the stage that I'm going to have now with the managing director uh, about this, uh, this, this theme today of transparency, um, the way it's being promoted in member countries, and indeed the way and what is being done within the fund uh, itself um, on the uh, issue of transparency. So thank you very much again for your words. Um, I, I'm interested, uh, Madame Lagarde, to, to explore a little bit the, uh, the delicate balance between the roles that you play. And you talked about a few of them. Trusted advisor and global watchdog are two of those. How, how do you how do you find that balance? Um, I, I imagine there's a, a, a tension there a lot of the time. Mm. How do you find the balance and what dictates which way you go? Um, yes, there is a tension between the two because typically the, uh, the trusted advisor relationship um, relies on a degree of confidentiality um, and the ability to um, argue sometimes against the political um, rationale behind such or such policy. And that part of the debate uh, does not uh, necessarily have to be um, mainstream discussion. Right. Right? Uh, and that's actually one of the conditions for it to be efficient and lead to possible changes of policies. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example, which, which is actually available on, on, on our website, because if you reconcile things, you can actually put one and one together. I'll give you the example of uh, Sweden. Sweden, um, we recently conducted an Article 4, which is totally disclosed and, and available to those who are interested in Sweden and the Swedish economy, which is doing pretty well. Uh, but we, we found out that um, household mortgage was going seriously up and uh, could actually uh, have consequences on the, 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 the solidity of the Swedish banks. And I'm not here mm -hmm. saying that the Swedish banks are not solid, that, that they're fine. But it could have ramifications, okay? And what's interesting is that Swedish banks are not just located in Sweden. They are also invested and they have branched out and they have subsidiaries uh, in other countries in the Nordic uh, part of Europe. Mm. So it's a matter that becomes suddenly not just Swedish or Sweden-specific, right. but that is of interest to Denmark, to Norway, to a few yep. other countries in the vicinity. So we are the trusted advisor when we say to the finance minister of Sweden or the prime minister, you have to look at this household mortgage issue because that is something that could be a bit of a threat to your economy. But we have to be the watchdog mm. when we say to all the Nordic countries, 
ramification, possible spillover effects onto sure. your respective economies as a result of the Swedish and banks I, not I, being that powerful. And I imagine it's a very fine line sometimes. Yep. And I imagine that is what people still have an issue with. What dictates it? What's the rule of thumb? Who makes the decision? Who decides, right, we are going to we are not going to share this information, and who decides actually it's in the public good to know it? You know, we share most of it, and most of it is in the public domain. Uh, the staff report that is done at the end of these, uh, I don't call them Article 4 for the purpose of this meeting, I will call them annual audit. So hmm. you have a, a mission from the IMF that will visit the 189 countries, and they will conduct their mission by talking to the authorities, by talking to the unions, by talking to the business associations, by talking to NGOs, and so on and so forth. They conclude that with a staff report, and that is available. So a lot of the information, a lot of the, uh, the concerns, a lot of the recommendations are actually available mm -hmm. in the report that is published with the consent of that country. Now, the individual discussions that the mission chief and his team has with the central bank governor or the finance minister. This is something that remains in their communication yeah. and which yeah. doesn't go onto any site or any publications of any sort. And that fine line is really actually determined by the principle of efficiency. Mm -hmm. Is it fair, Madame Lagarde, to say that, you know, Despite all the progress that has been made, um, in times of stress or in times of crisis, mm -hmm. the instinctive default position at an organization like the IMF is to withdraw and be a little bit more secretive. No. No? No. You know, I, I think the institution has actually learned its lessons. and. Uh, the determination to publish as much as possible with consent of the membership, because it's not you know, for us eventually to decide, but with, with consent of the, member, of the members and with a lot of peer pressure between them. Because when you have, say, 169 deciding to publish their report, mm. uh, the other 20 are really sort of in, in, in a hot spot when they say, no, no, no publication. As a result of that, most of them now publish. Mm -hmm. But this was determined at the time of the Asian crisis. Uh, most of what the IMF was doing in the, I mean, in the early 80s was pretty secretive. Yeah. Not disclosed, uh, discussed behind closed doors amongst men, essentially. Um, and the, the Asian financial crisis really brought to the fore the fact that a lot of the information should have been communicated, mm -hmm. and that would have been helpful in order to prevent and anticipate. So I think as a result of that, having learned that lesson, you know, run forward, yep. uh, then okay. everything pretty much is All right. public that, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty strong message, I think, And a lot you. of it is free as well, by the way. Yes. That's something that we've determined a couple right. of years ago. There used to be uh, statistic data, a lot of compilation of, of very valuable information that was only accessible if you paid the fees. This is no longer the case either. It's free. How big a part of the discussion, um, I'll move on from this in a second, but how big a part of the discussion is the likely reaction in the marketplace, in the market? Um, the extent to which any sort of risk yeah. can, can impact the market. Now, we, of course, we have policies. And it's one of the exceptions where a country 
of the country, the authorities represented by executive directors as Andrea was, uh, or as uh, I can see a few of uh, former colleagues in the room, they can actually say, oops, market sensitive, mm. please delete that particular piece of, of uh, data or mm. information mm. from the report. Uh, it's, the policy is extremely um, detailed, specific, and only allows for the, that information to be removed if it is really documented and determined that it is going to actually swing markets and it is of a confidential nature that would actually harm uh, in, in a detrimental way the uh, fairness and openness and transparency. Um, and then, on the other hand, um, if, if, if you are not, uh, if, if, the mar if your communication or a lack of communication to the market means the market becomes upset, does that then dictate that you need to be more open in your communication? And I will mention the first news piece here, and that is the way the market is reacting to a lack of information surrounding the Greek situation. And, and the IMF's we, participation in that. We, we, are, we are not market-driven in the decisions that we make or the analysis that we conduct. We have to pay attention to markets. Uh, we have a department within the IMF which is uh, markets and, and, and monetary policies, which obviously keeps a very close eye on development. But our determination, our analysis are not market-driven. Mm. Um, <clears throat> separately, I would contend that when we publish a report with the consent of the country, um, as was the case uh, with Greece yesterday, for instance, we do contribute to transparency. We do contribute to a better information of all those interested. Now, people can argue with uh, the findings. Mm. People mm. can uh, mm. disagree with uh, our conclusions. But we go in in full independence uh, with uh, a clear determination to be um, the, you know, both the trusted advisor, uh, but the, 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 the ruthless truth teller, as Lord Maynard Keynes mm. would have said. Mm. So we, we, we're not sugarcoating. And All right. Um, I, I'll leave that. No, no doubt we, we will come back to that issue. Um, uh, I was. I was. I, I saw on your on your website the the, the fiscal transparency page, mm -hmm. um, which I think has been up for what a, a year or two now. Uh, possibly about. Was, yeah. What, what what drove that? What drove that 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 sort of information and 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 the need or the the desire for the IMF to have that uh, on your website. I think it's the, de the determination with the membership and with the Fiscal Affairs Department that uh, publishing this is important. Uh, focusing on the um, fiscal transparency rules, uh, codes, and providing a special service to some of those countries that volunteer for the program mm. is actually beneficial. Mm. So it's one of the services that is available and which has led countries to actually change a few things about the way in which they report. Uh, the UK has been one. Mm. Ireland has been also changing uh, the way in which they deal with private, uh, public, uh, public-private partnership in how they report uh, those uh, 
those um, public spending. Mm. Is there, is there, and, and uh, you know, I, I've heard this mentioned, and it's not, it's not me, the cynic here, saying this. But is there a sense of a, a lick of paint here? Uh, appearances matter, and we've got this up on our site. Um, we, we, we need to give the impression this is extremely important to us. It's not an impression. What, what certainly um, you know, has, has changed over the course, you know, since I, I started my, my mission at, uh, as, as head of the IMF, what has certainly changed is the scope, volume, and depth of information that is available, as well as the channels of disseminations. Mm. That, that has been a striking um, uh, feature of the way in which we, we deliver our work. You know, we, I'm sorry to say, but we used not to tweet Okay, um, but we started about two years ago. You've opened and, that and door now, yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> two years ago, okay, and and you know when we started using uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, WeChat, Weibo, and so on and so forth, based on the culture of the IMF, it was you know, questionable whether it was appropriate to actually communicate along, the, along those lines. I think it's very necessary that we do and that all the good work that is done that contributes to transparency is actually made available. Mm. I mean, we live in a society where uh, clearly there is uh, this, this appetite for information, data, and, and we cannot just hide the good work that we do. We have yeah. to share it. Uh, moving now to People the... don't always like it, huh? no. let's face it. Right. Mo moving away from internal and now more to, to, to the way you promote transparency externally, you have these, these FTEs, the fiscal transparency evaluations. Are these yeah. ever conducted uh, privately as a condition of IMF assistance? No, the FTE, the, the, the fiscal um, transparency evaluations are voluntary. This is not something that we can impose upon a country mm. as part of the normal surveillance, um, uh, the trusted advisor mission that I referred to earlier. Mm. We, could, we could imagine doing it or doing something equivalent when we are the firefighter, when we provide a financing program. And we could actually say, you know, because we need to better understand and because we have specific um, remedies to offer, mm. uh, we really insist on you going through the, F, the, the, the fiscal transparency evaluation. We haven't done that for the moment. It's been done on, on, a, on a purely voluntary basis. Yeah, and you've, I believe the IMF website has published 15 reports, including the UK. Yeah. Um, I wonder if others have been conducted that haven't been made available publicly yet. Probably because some are underway at the moment and th they will only be made public once they're completed. Mm. Mm. I'd have to double check that, but I'm sure it's, it is the case. What, what more, you know, to, to, this, to the 15% number that you talked about and the, and the, and the sorts of benefits that, yeah. that, that come out of, uh, and just very quickly checking, that 15% number, is that country by country? Yeah. Or is this, it's not a, a rounded general you know, number? I haven't, seen, I haven't read the, the, the research and I actually questioned this morning to make sure that I could actually volunteer that, that number. But it's, it's a number that cuts across uh, those emerging market economies that are under under review, yeah. Mm. And and what 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 sort sort of message do you think that sends governments? When the sort of feedback you get from governments in emerging markets, in particular, what sort of message do you get from them? I don't think that we've received a thank you letter for that. <laughs> uh, but uh, my suspicion is that, you know, 
15% uh, lower borrowing cost is, is not insignificant for a, for a sovereign. Mm. And uh, if we, we are going to communicate on that because I think it should encourage some of the countries to actually go even further and deeper in their transparency And you really efforts. think this is a trend now, not just a blip? I think it is, yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? I would hope so. Okay. I would hope so. All right. Um, back, back to the, the sort of... In fact, I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about something Mona mentioned, and you mentioned it as well, and that is uh, the, all the players involved and the importance of the private sector. Uh, the importance of the private sector as a, as, a, as a force for good, but of course there is a lot of concern about the private sector and corruption in the private sector, and I know you've talked about this in the past as well. Uh, Can I stop you just for a second? Yeah. I think corruption is not just a one-way street. It's not just mm. the private sector. It takes two to corrupt, uh, uh, one that gives, one that receives. So I think it's, a, it's an issue that needs to be uh, thoroughly, deeply uh, uh, investigated, pursued at, at, at all levels, mm. public and private. We, we only operate at the public level. Mm. Um, but 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 of course you you will you are working closely with the with the private sector as well. You need that participation. They need to sit at this table if we're going to move forward in a positive fashion, right? We we work with public authorities, and when we conduct um, an anti-money laundering, and much more recently, and in a very very broad way now, the. Uh, um, uh, CFT, the counter-financing of terrorism, mm. which is, you know, they're, they're part of the same story. Mm. Let's face it. Uh, we operate with public authorities, with policymakers, and we help them trace uh, the flow of illicit financing. We help them identify the transactions. We help them with as much technical assistance as we can. But we don't work with the public, with the private sector. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, that, that's where we provide our assistance. Sure. I'm jumping around a little bit, but I want to come back to this issue of, and it's mentioned often um, uh, by the IMF, this issue of even-handedness mm -hmm. when you deal yep. with, with countries. Um, to what extent is the IMF getting to grips with that and communicating about how it deals differently with different countries and fairly with different countries? I think we have to deal differently with different countries. And you know, if there is anything that I have learned myself as a former finance minister for France uh, from the financial crisis and, and how we went about stimulating on a global basis by an increase of 2% uh, of GDP is that we should have been and we could have been a lot more country specific. Mm. And that would have been probably a, a more reasonable option. So I think anything we do, whether it's surveillance, whether it's program, whether it's technical assistance, has to be country specific. Mm. You know, I'm just back from Uganda and the Central African Republic. You don't provide technical assistance in those countries in the same way as you provide technical assistance to Switzerland or, or Italy, for that matter. Mm. It's, it's different. So we absolutely, if we want to do our job, we have to be country specific. Now, where we have to be very careful, and that's one of the uh, principles of operation of the IMF, is that we have to be even-handed. And we cannot, simply because a country is either a small country or because it's a big country, uh, favor one or, or be more uh, complacent or, or, or less demanding uh, with one or the other. Mm. So it's, 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 an, it's a very subtle um, uh, dosage, if you will, of being country-specific, 
tailored to the fundamentals and specificities of the economy, the demographics, the culture, uh, the surrounding and the security of that country, and being even-handed. We have instituted in, in the institution a, a mechanism by which the executive board members who represent the entire membership can actually raise the lack of even-handedness if they see mm. it. Mm. And where that's... Which uh, they do, right? Which they do occasionally, mm. yes. Mm. And, and, and then that is investigated, that is checked, verified. And, uh, and if there is uh, a treatment uh, on a particular issue that has been that has not been even-handed, then we need to rectify it. But you are happy with, with where you stand on this now and the way it's communicated, Look, despite the criticism? Perfection is not of this world. And, and I think we need to constantly, constantly work and improve on, on, on those issues, mm -hmm. whether it's transparency, whether it's even-handedness, whether it's uh, the, being the uh, ruthless truth-teller, as I said earlier. We, we constantly have to watch and, 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 uh, and improve. Mm. Um, and by the way, this, yeah. uh, this, you know, when, when I coming, I'm, I'm a funny animal because I, I spent most of my life in the private sector uh, and then I became a finance minister. But when I joined the IMF, I was bemused by the level of internal auditing, mm. uh, internal uh, evaluation, both conducted within the institution, but conducted also by sort of uh, separate bodies that were totally independent in order to constantly evaluate and publish the report. Right. Was that a box-ticking exercise? Why were you, no. why were you, why were you bemused by that? Because I don't know many, many institutions that have that level of scrutiny, that level of accountability, and that sort of open-door policy to any criticism that mm. you care mm. To, mm. Uh, uh, to raise or issue. And yet the perception continues to be uh, or veer occasionally to the, to the critical, despite all of this. Because, as I said, perfection is not of this world, and we have to constantly be able to improve. And to better improve, you have to open your, your chest, take your shirt off, and tell people to throw arrows at you. That's mm. what we do. Mm. And, and if there are things that we do wrongly, then we should fix it. What, 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 I'm going to come to some, uh, some audience questions shortly, but what, what more will we see from the IMF in this area, this area of opening up, this area of uh, uh, Christine Lagarde standing up and talking about transparency and the way it evolves at the, uh, at the fund? I'm, I hope that we, that we do more in relation to... Um, Corruption, because it leads to um, very risky and dangerous activities. Mm. Uh, when we do the, we, we've conducted anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism um, uh, financing in 140 <coughs> countries now. And there's a big academic debate as to whether that is useful, not useful. Does it contribute to reducing the risks? I think we need to just work on that more and more and more. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what helps terrorism? What helps um, the, the, the obscure activities that are conducted uh, behind uh, screens? It's money. Mm -hmm. So you have to follow the money. Mm -hmm. You have to know where it's coming from, where it's going and how. 
And I think this is based on the principles of good governance. So we will be working on these issues of governance, on whether or not we can incorporate those governance principles into the annual audit that we conduct under this Article 4. Mm -hmm. You know, we have seen... And will we see that happen? I would hope so. Yeah. It's, you know, it's at, at the end of the day, it's the decision of the board uh, as to whether or not we should go further into that, unless uh, these governance issues are so macro-critical that it, it either prevents us from operating efficiently mm -hmm. or it, it impedes the mission altogether. Mm. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Ukraine is a good example where <clears throat> because of corruption, uh, which had endemic proportions, uh, we suggested to the authorities, and luckily they accepted, that anti-corruption measures, anti-corruption agencies, uh, change of the public procurement rules, uh, sorting out uh, a particular company that was the nest of a lot of illicit flows, as well as reforming the judicial systems, were part and parcel of the economic recovery that uh, was desired. Mm -hmm. The authorities agreed, and we just need to keep at it. And that's one of the examples of where you know, our entry into this anti-corruption um, uh, activity is, I hope, uh, going to be more prevalent in the future. Um, you, you mentioned the board, so it's a good opportunity to, to ask this question, which I know you, you've been asked many times and, and, and no doubt have a pretty stock response for, but the, the minutes aren't published. Uh, well, they're published every five years. Is, is Three years. Every, oh, it's three years, yeah, is it? Yeah, the statute of limitation is three years. Okay. Anything right. that is, you know, older than three years of age, you can have access. And, you know, us journalists throw, throw at you, the ECB publishes it, the Fed publishes it. You know, you know in, in the interest of transparency, is that going to change? I mean, that's should, the board. Sh no, shouldn't it change, is my question. I think it's going to be a board decision. It's not going to be uh, uh, the, the, the chairman's um, ultimate and, and, and single uh, decision. Okay. Um, I've evaded your response. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space, right? <laughs> Um, back, back to where, where I started, and I'm going to get a little bit more specific, but the, the, the context in which you're operating, and I, I, I'm pretty sure in, in Davos I heard you talk about the possible race to the bottom on taxes, on regulation, on trade, and, and that being a potential black swan. You know, that context, the context here in the US, uh, um, anti-globalization, the, the, the rise of populism, how, how hard is it? Or how much harder is it to push this message that you're pushing today in that context? You know, I, I think that what is really important is to find amongst our membership, because I have to go back to my institution, the 189 countries that uh, we have to serve. What's critically important is to find the common denominator between them. And I really think that um, financial stability sustainable and inclusive growth, creation of jobs, particularly for young people around the world, have to be the three cornerstones of uh, what bring countries together. Mm. And while there can be criticism about this, that, or the other, I think around those three pillars, I don't see how we could disagree. Because I don't know any policymakers around the world, whether it's in the low-income countries, the emerging markets, or the advanced economies, be that in this country or across the Atlantic, I can't think of any 
policymakers saying, I want more unemployment, I want less growth, mm -hmm. and I want more financial instability. This is just, I mean, all that person is yet to be born. Um, so I think what we need to do, because our mission, as, as, as dictated by the, our founding fathers back in 1944, was to procure the financial and economic stability. Mm. So we have to focus on that and be as ruthless truth-teller as we can, uh, relying on the solidity of the work done by economists and experts from around the world, all gathered in this institution that serves public good, to say, okay, well, trade has worked so far and in so many corners of the world, but it has not worked for all. Hmm. And measures need to be taken in order to address this inclusive growth issue. Or financing is nicely spreading and uh, you know, helping uh, entrepreneurs around the world, but not women. Right. And particularly in low-income countries. These are the kinds of things that we have to flag and we have to explain why that is. And, do, and have to adapt to as well, right? Uh, how, and how... We have to propose the policies that will remedy those issues. That will remedy the issues, okay. It's not a matter of adapting to this new paradigm, this new... You know, I've been saying since, you know, certainly in Davos 2013, I said, pay attention yeah, to excessive inequalities. It is going to come back to haunt you and it will hurt. Mm. That's what we are seeing uh, now. And, and, and we need to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, shutting down uh, trade uh, or reducing the activity is not going to address this issue. Mm. So we need to find the right ways to address issues that are of common interest to the membership. Let, let me ask my question, if I may, in a, in a slightly more direct uh, way. Um, your, wh what does it do to your, your push for transparency when, when your largest shareholder acts in a way that many say flies in the face of transparency, flies in the face of ethical behavior? You know, we have to um, assess policies. We have to look at bills that are passed and uh, evaluate the impact that they can have. And, uh, and we will do that. But we're not going to opine on, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, movements, slogans, uh, mm. views that are uh, reported by one or the other. I, I think we need to be very cautious with mm. that. Mm. Um, we're not being, we're not, you know, being pompous or, or full of vanity, but we, we need to operate in, in a, in a reliable, scientific way in order to shed light on the consequences of decisions made, not decisions that are talked about. Mm -hmm. Right, I'm going to open it up to our audience, who I know have got some questions for you, and sure. I'll, I'll sort of weave, weave this stuff in. Yeah, I'll take three at a time, because I know there are a lot of questions. So, gentlemen there, gentlemen here, and gentlemen there. You'll have a woman as well. I, I you know, I was looking for a woman, yeah. I was looking for a woman. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's going to be three women next. Sorry for being yeah, go male. Ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Tell, us who, uh, tell us who you are and then ask you questions. Uh, Ilya Panamarev, um, I'm coming from uh, one of the least transparent areas of the world, from Russia uh, uh, and, and Ukraine. I'd like to thank you very much for what IMF is doing for Ukraine right now to stabilize the country. And I think it's uh, not right now only a matter of economic stability, it's a matter of geopolitical security, which is extremely uh, uh, important. <coughs> but my question is, I saw uh, the influence 
influence of IMF in Russia in 90s. And right now, a lot of what Vladimir Putin is doing is blaming IMF uh, uh, for the way uh, my country has gone. Uh, and uh, what are the lessons learned uh, uh, in Ukraine when uh, you are doing uh, your assistance and reforms in Ukraine to avoid what was done in Russia and to push the country towards the West, towards the civilized community and not uh, uh, to be in their nutshell? Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, gentleman right here. Do you want to grab that mic? Thanks. As a trusted advisor to member states and as someone who's promoting transparency, when your staff visits a country that's known for being highly corrupt, what do you tell these officials? Secondly, do you think corruption is a form of ta uh, private taxation? Thank you. And right behind you, if you could hand that back there. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Alex. Alex, uh, Madam Lagarde, uh, my name is Matthew Murray, and up until a couple of weeks ago, I worked for the Obama administration as a senior official on, among other issues, uh, diplomacy towards Ukraine, where I would argue we, we had an excellent track record of cooperation with the IMF, and, and you were very much at the center of the leadership um, in, in rendering transparency part of the diplomacy towards that country. So I'd like to ask you to comment a little bit further, given the high stakes uh, and the epic struggle that we face over rules-based trade in, in Ukraine, on whether you see the Ukrainian leadership taking ownership of the transparency agenda, whether you see uh, the reforms in Ukraine, such as they are today, beginning to pay for themselves soon, and whether, therefore, you think the IMF will be able to, at some point, begin to disengage and let the private sector uh, take over where you leave off. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, I hope I did not mis misunderstand you, your question on, um, on, on uh, Ukraine and uh, who was blaming uh, whom. But I, I have to say that we were uh, involved in Russia, as you know, and uh, when I first visited Russia as managing director of the IMF, I was uh, quite pleasantly surprised to hear uh, then-President Medvedev um, um, actually thank the IMF for the role that we played in helping his country uh, at the time that you mentioned, in the, in the 90s. So there was clearly an acknowledgement of the role that we played. He, he did say to me it was not pleasant, and it's, it's never particularly pleasant. Uh, I've, I've had the same uh, story told in uh, some of the Asian countries that we did help. Uh, but in the case of, uh, of Russia, I, I had gratitude expressed by the, by the then president. In terms of uh, what we do in Ukraine, I, I believe that no country, however big it is, uh, would have any interest in having at its border uh, an economy that is not functioning, uh, that is um, uh, in, in, in economic misery. So I would hope that at some stage, uh, the work that we are doing and that we have done in relation to Ukraine is recognized for what it is, which is to try to help the country um, get back on its feet, um, be able to walk on its legs, as I often say in relation to another country, which I'm sure I will get a question about, um, 
and be able to do so uh, with less corruption, um, respect for the rule of law, and, uh, and uh, economic activity being, being prosperous and not captured. So um, what do we say to countries that, uh, where we know that corruption is, is, is just there? Luckily, we have, um, in a way, third-party validators. When um, various institutions publish rankings or assess the, uh, the degree of uh, transparency, of corruption, of uh, um, what I would call you know, funny business going on, we can rely on that uh, to actually put the question on the table. Hmm. Um, do we do enough of that? In my view, probably not. And that's the whole point of this governance review that is being conducted at the moment and which will give rise to uh, proposals that will be submitted to the board. I would like us to do a little bit more. Uh, it's relatively easy when we have a program because then we have traction. Uh, it's, you know, tit for tat. Uh, financing comes, but you really have to fix this, sort that out. If it's of a macro-critical dimension, then clearly we are legitimate in saying your public procurement system is completely rotten. You need to fix it. And that's part of the prior actions that you need to take. Mm. Or um, you've got all these funny special purpose vehicles outside your budget. That needs to go. And you need to reintegrate all of that in the budget so that we can understand exactly what is going on. And when you say that you, your deficit is only 8%, uh, we want to know what's in those uh, SPVs uh, as well. Um, or you know, your uh, court decisions are only coming uh, 15 years or 20 years after uh, the matter has been raised. That's an issue which needs to be addressed as well. <coughs> or your tax cases uh, are, are never completed, and, and uh, tax is not paid for years and years and years until it is eventually settled. Those are areas where it's clearly of a fiscal nature, it's clearly macrocritical, and when we are in a program relationship, then we have traction and we can, we can request that that be uh, addressed. Uh, you asked me whether it was private uh, taxation, and I think that's an interesting proposition because it is clearly revenue, which at least portion of should be public revenue. Uh, the, the assessment, which is not ours, it's been published and it's generally a sort of conventional wisdom that bribes only amount for about $2 trillion. That's 2% of global GDP. It's huge. And it's, 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 you know, it's private uh, withholdings, um, some of which should actually find its way into public revenue. Um, ownership, um, I, I would hope so. Uh, ownership of the, of, the, of the very deep reforms that were decided. Uh, I think it's a constant work that needs to be done in partnership. I'll give you an example, um, and, and you know that uh, as much as I do. It's all very well saying that we are setting up an anti-corruption agency. But if the members of that agency are all appointed by the same group of people, who are, whole, you know, who are all holding hands and, and diverting uh, assets, it doesn't work. It works on paper. The agency has been set up. Yes, but so what? So if those agencies 
are staffed with people who are recommended independently. And in the case of Ukraine, we have worked extensively with NGOs, civil society, to have proposals coming out. Is it perfect? Probably not. But it's certainly a step in the right direction in order to have something that is more reliable than you know, the president, the prime minister, and the head of parliament appointing their respective friends. Mm -hmm. Not that mm -hmm. their friends would not be good, but in terms of governance, it just uh, didn't pass mustard. Um, you know, I take a little bit of comfort from the fact that we are heading towards the next review of the Ukraine program. And I don't think that in the history of the relationship between the IMF and Ukraine, we have gone so far into the life of a program. There have been many programs in the past. Most of them have been aborted after one or two reviews. We are now into the, is it the fourth review? I think it's the fourth <coughs> review. So yeah, I, I'm a little Third. bit more confident. Apparently. Okay. Third, sorry, third. Good. Uh, yeah, uh, lady there, lady behind you, and lady in the front row here. So Wow. <laughs> I said I'd do it. Madam, thank you so very much for being here today. I'm Elaine Sorello. I'm the Associate Rector of Wisconsin International Ukraine University, WIUU, a private university in Kiev, Ukraine. And Indeed, Ukraine has been the topic, it seems to be, of your conversation today. Um, your points about sunlight and, uh, do what we, and what IMF can do and is trying to do more, particularly in the areas of communication about transparency, uh, would you be able to see, let's say, for the public interests in Ukraine across the for the people of Ukraine, a program, a uh, indeed maybe even a conference, in which these kinds of topics are presented for public uh, consumption. And at the same time, it could also be possibly even televised. Yesterday I was here at Atlantic Council. There was an excellent presentation of the rollout of Current Time TV, which is going to be addressing a whole host of topics. Do you see this as a role for IMF to take forward, particularly in Ukraine at this time? Okay, interesting. Yep, uh, lady behind you. Um, Madame Lagarde, first of all, thank you for being a role model for young uh, professionals. My name is Elizabeth Rojas. I work for the Nokia Corporation here in Washington, uh, directing all of uh, government relations in the Americas. My question is, data-driven decision-making and transparency, you need technology to get that data and to uh, evangelize uh, the data. How can the IMF, the World Bank, and all of the multilateral institutions work more efficiently with technology companies to really have the best tools to gather that data? Mm -hmm. Because uh, in my experience, it's very, very tricky to navigate uh, these big organizations and to bring real pragmatic solutions uh, and for yourselves to gather that data. OK, thank you. And uh, yeah, right here. Adrian Arsht, Executive Vice Chairman of the Atlantic Council. Uh, today, Greece has um, criticized the IMF, uh, questioned some of the reports um, on the issue of transparency. How are you responding to what Greece is alleging? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, communication issue on, on Ukraine. Uh, I'll tell you what uh, I commit here we will do. When the program is over, I know my team is getting terribly uh, edgy now. 
the, once the program is over, as we have done in Latvia, as we have done in Ireland, um, as we have done in uh, Portugal, if I recall, we will do a public conference in Ukraine to have a public debate uh, attended by members of the Ukrainian academic world, uh, economists from other uh, countries, hopefully, and some of the IMF uh, leaders who have worked so hard on, the, on that program, so that the, you know, we can draw the lessons and, and learn from the, uh, from, from the process and, and acknowledge what has been achieved, and maybe criticize what should have been achieved and has not been achieved. But that's what I would commit. You see, we need to be, um, it's funny because we, we are this trusted advisor, we are this watchdog, we are the firefighter, and we are the, the fitness coach. But we have to let the authorities take ownership. If we, if we don't let the, um, the policymakers, the authorities, the governments, take full ownership and decide that it's theirs, and it's going to be for the benefit of their people, their country, it is not going to work. I've seen it time and again. When there is no ownership, there is no positive outcome at the end of the day. So uh, that, that's you know, where I think our communication can play out well. And of course, in the process of the program, we are very um, open and we actually publish uh, the, uh, the review and we, we, we are totally transparent on that front. Now, on the uh, uh, use of technology, very well put. Uh, I think we've already gone a long way uh, from those sort of stacks of papers and, and uh, Excel uh, um, documents to being far more uh, technology-based, but it's not enough, and we have to just constantly be at it. So for that reason, um, I'll give you two examples of what we do internally, what we do externally. Uh, internally, we have decided uh, that we would actually entrust the youngest generation of our economists to take charge in a way. And we are setting up, uh, as I was telling you earlier on, uh, a lab where they will have the ability to innovate, <coughs> to fail, to start again, uh, to uh, make bold proposals, to think outside the box. And it's, it's a little bit unusual in the natural culture of the IMF to do something like that. But I'm personally committed to that experiment, and I will encourage them to do that. I think in the field of technologies, they are going to be helpful and focused. That's internal. Externally, I'll give you the example of something that we did about a month ago in Cameroon. Cameroon was interested in beefing up and improving its uh, uh, taxation system and the whole sort of uh, public finance management. So we helped them build a, a hackathon. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Hackathon? <laughs> that brought together from all corners of Africa and uh, beyond uh, experts who suggested ideas. And there were 1,000 flowers blooming, of which some were selected as the best uh, recipes for improvement of domestic revenue mobilization in Cameroon. Now, I very much hope, because this is not just data-driven, not just policy-dictated, but it's also technology-supported, I very much hope that that particular experiment that we conducted with Cameroon can be leveraged and can be uh, made you know, 
of, of use to many other countries that are desperately in need of revenue mobilization. Um, yes, we did publish yesterday, uh, Adrienne, uh, the, the report, two reports actually on Greece. One which is the Article 4, so the regular audit of the Greek economy, which we hadn't done for quite a few years because of uh, the programs that we had with Greece. And we also conducted something that is called the ex post evaluation, uh, which reviewed uh, the program that was started in 2012. And we tried uh, in those reports, um, one of which is the in-depth analysis by our experts of the current state of the economy, the other one being a review of the previous program, we tried in full honesty to be those uh, ruthless truth teller. And yes, we are criticized occasionally, and I'm, I'm sure that the Greek authorities didn't like some of the things that we said. But we also acknowledged in that Article 4 report the massive effort undertaken from the fiscal point of view by the Greek population and the huge sacrifices that were made. We also acknowledged that some reforms were conducted. But what is generally picked up by those who do not like all of it is the fact that we also said that some reforms were still to come, were not completed, had not yet delivered uh, the benefits that were expected in order to unleash the forces of the Greek economy. Mm. And I think that both on the income tax reform, where too few people, generally the wage earners, are bearing the burden of taxation, and on the pension scheme, where clearly there has to be a double layer, one of social protection for uh, the less privileged people, and a pension system that actually holds sustainability, reforms are absolutely needed. And you know, you can, somebody can ask me the questions three times over, I will still say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, look, I've, we're running out of time. We've got uh, time for three very quick questions. Yeah, gentleman there, uh, lady there, and uh, I'll take the lady at the back. Hi, uh, Madam, Madam Lagarde, David Lauder with Reuters News Service. Um, uh, I just wanted to return very briefly to Greece. Um, you know, as you well know, uh, a lack of fiscal transparency led to this crisis originally. Um, I'm just wondering if you can sort of discuss where, where Greece is in its transparency efforts. Um, and also, were, were transparency is issues a factor in the differing views among IMF board members uh, about Greece's ability to meet the more ambitious fiscal targets that European lenders would like to see? The, 3.5% of, of GDP. Uh, if not, what, what do you count those differences to? Thank you. Okay. Go ahead. <clears throat> Madame Lagarde, my name is Liliana. I'm from Moldova. You just quoted Stendhal. I will start quoting Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, talking about you, I think. Uh, who said that a woman, you never know how strong is a woman, she's like a bag of tea, you never know how strong is she until she'll get into hot water. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being an interesting bag of tea. Um, so concerning uh, the corruption and what you mentioned that it's more to be done in relation to corruption because it's uh, 
leading to a very risky and dangerous activity, I will keep your attention a little bit more on my part of the world, on Moldova. Do you think that IMF can have the same approach towards Moldova as towards Ukraine? And are you in favor or of a regional approach on anti-corruption activity, which IMF will do? I'm talking here not only about Southeastern Europe, but also about some regions or you will get more into individual and particular activities. Also taking considerations that you mentioned, the conference, lessons learned, and so on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Go ahead. Further. Madame Lagarde, thank you so much. My name is Anjali Shahani, and I'm a student at Georgetown. And I wanted to ask about what the IMF is currently doing to ensure long-term continuity of the changes in the policies that are a result of your advisory in, in anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. In particular, what do you do to ensure that a new administration comes and changes whatever you have done and that the results are long-term effect? Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, David, where is David? It's somewhere over there. Yeah. So, um, lack, lack of fiscal transparency um, clearly was one of the factors that led to uh, uh, Greece finding itself in, in, in the difficult spot that it found itself in 2010. Uh, I remind you that, you know, for those who are not familiar with the Greek fiscal uh, reporting um, history, that fiscal deficit grew significantly um, one report after the other. And from an average of 6%, if I recall, it went up to 13% uh, and, and, and more. So there were issues of reporting. That was acknowledged by, um, I think, uh, Eurostat, and numbers were revised. Um, I think a lot, a lot has been improved. Uh, I'm not sure that it's entirely, um, the job is entirely completed. Uh, we are still seeing revision and frequent revisions uh, of uh, some of those numbers. Everybody revised, let's face it. Huh? Um, uh, including in the United States, there is often revisions of, of growth, uh, one quarter, two quarters, sometimes two or three years down the road. The same is true in, in uh, the euro area. But it, it's a fact that Greece revises uh, quite often and, and in, in uh, significant, uh, with significant variations. Is that leading some of the uh, euro area partners to expect higher or lower uh, primary surplus? I'm not sure that this is what is dictating uh, that view. Uh, I think it's, it's, it has more to do with an assessment of the potential for reforms and potential for actual economic output from those reforms. Moldova, um, thank you for the quote of the tea bag. I, you know, I could never tell whether it was President Roosevelt or Mrs. Roosevelt who actually said that. <laughs> but that tells a lot about both of them, actually, um, and the relationship uh, eventually. Your country has gone through a lot of um, corruption, a lot of turmoil as a result of uh, uh, the banking sector, essentially, and, and certain banks being, being uh, 
at the center of, of corruption practices. So we have called, as part of the normal review that we do, we have called for um, a, a more sanitized sector, better rules being implemented, and so on and so forth. And we will continue to do that. Uh, if, if, you know, I would have to check with the team, but if conferences on those topics were to be helpful, uh, we would uh, we would certainly um, we could certainly consider organizing it. That's. Uh, but thank you, thank you for flagging that. We'll we'll I'll I'll talk to the team to see whether they they see value in it. Um, Long-term impact, you know, as I said, it's, it's a forever uh, question that we have. And uh, we were discussing that this morning with the team. We currently have 38 missions somewhere in the world working on anti-money laundering, working on uh, countering um, the, financing, the, the terrorism financing. <coughs> what is the outcome? What is the result? How efficient is it? How, how much less? Uh, money laundering is there, how much less financing of terrorism results from those efforts. Dif incredibly difficult to measure. But what we can certainly notice is when eventually the legislative framework that is available and that eventually has been improved as a result of those missions is eventually disrupted, changed, removed by new authorities. And then we can raise our voice and, and argue that this is not helpful and it is dangerous because it finances, you know, very often uh, illicit transfers and uh, illegal activities and terrorism at the end of the day. Hmm. Um, look, we're out of time. Um, one very quick final question, big, big picture question from me, again back to the context and the difficulty of the context. Um, is your organization uh, agile enough, adaptable enough, do you think, uh, now and how, <clears throat> how much more improvement do you need to see to really reach that next milestone when we talk about transparency and when we talk about openness and we talk about economic resilience? Yes. It is. That was it quick. Is, it is now, is yes. it? Yes. Madame Lagarde, thank you very much indeed.